Welcome to the party. Oh, Greg, I am geeking out. <laughs> you really are. <laughs> I really am. Um, I'm going to apologize to our guests shortly uh, for the freak out I may do throughout this podcast. But, Greg, this is one of our big gets. I'm so excited. Um, and uh, I'm just I'm tickled to death he even answered the email and replied back to me. And I think that speaks a lot about his character and how humble of a guy he really is. Who we have with us is international best-selling novelist Matthew Riley. How you doing, sir? Hey, Johnny. Hey, Greg. Good to be here. Good. Awesome. Uh, Thanks for being here. How's it going with uh, with quarantine? How are you? Yeah, how you doing? So I, I live here in, in L.A., and um, it's it's been strange. It's been strange. And as a writer, uh, when it first started, I thought this is you know, this isn't so bad. I work from home. Now I've got a lot more time. And I I actually went sort of hell for leather into my next book, the, the final book of the Jack West series. And, and I found I had too much time on my hand. I was working too much. I had to sort of pull myself back, slow myself down. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I can imagine that. Yeah. At the start, it was new, scary, and so a little bit exciting. Now it's not new, still scary, and it's just becoming Groundhog Day. Yeah, you're. Yeah, that's a good way to look at it. What um, where are like, how is it in LA? Is it anywhere like where I'm from, Illinois, Chicago area? Greg's from Wisconsin. Um, I know Greg's rules are a little bit. It feels like your 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 state's a little more relaxed. Mine's still kind of tight. I heard LA is mm. crazy. Like, yeah, you know, it's been pretty tight. Yeah, uh, you know the the local mall is closed. The any any indoor mall is is closed. Mm. Um, the scariest thing for us was the the first riots um, were were a block away from our house. Oh, and it it oh. was pretty bad. Um, in terms of in terms of COVID, the people around here, you know, everybody wears a mask, and if you're out on the street. You might have your mask sort of down a little bit, but you see people 40 yards away and you both sort of raise your mask. And um, it's just a lot of people here in L.A. L.A. County, mm -hmm. 10 million people in it. So it's just a large, large place. Yeah. Yeah. I did. Um, the, you, you're referring to the riots about with, uh, uh, help me out, Greg, George. Yeah, the George Floyd. Yeah, Floyd those riots, right? Yeah. Uprisings. yeah, yeah. It's a shame. I, Greg and I have been talking about for, it seems, forever that everybody just needs to give each other a big hug. Tell them it's going to be okay. <laughs> yeah, you know, people, it's funny. I, I talked to some people, a guy I know, he had a bit of a meltdown in a store, you know, when we first were told to wear masks. And he was like, it's my right not to wear a mask. And I... I think every there's an underlying anxiety out there. Mm -hmm. I agree. I agree. Yeah. Some mornings I wake up at four thirty for no reason in the morning. You know, it's we're told there's something out there that's supposed to. It's dangerous. It's life threatening. Mm. And I think the weirdest thing about the whole COVID experience is 
in movie terms, it's all happening off screen. It's happening in hospital mm. emergency rooms. And we, we see some doctors on Twitter and we, there aren't many photos. They're not showing these emergency rooms being overwhelmed. So right. we're all trying to do our bit, but the, the real drama is happening off screen. And we, we just have to all sort of dig deep a little bit. But I think it makes a lot of people anxious, mm -hmm. irritable, mm -hmm. and short. I don't think this is the time to honk your horn too severely at somebody or, or yell at somebody to put their mask on because they mm. might turn around and really, you know, yeah. you don't know how anxious somebody else is. Right. And you don't know if that's the last, yeah, you don't know if that's the last thing that they need type thing. Yeah. 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 I think that's good. Um, so you're in LA now. Where did you grow up? So I was born and raised in Sydney, Australia. And I, I moved to L.A. at the start of 2015. So I was writing my books. Uh, I, I went to a Jesuit high school. I went to law school at university and was 24 in 1998 when iStation came out. And so I've been writing professionally for 22 years. And most of it was from Australia. And I was doing movie deals in Hollywood from Sydney, Australia, and I yeah. fly here and do meetings, and I wanted to do more in the movie world, and uh, starting to bear fruit right now, actually. So, oh, cool! Nice. I want—I I definitely want to get to that because I have some ideas. <laughs> um, uh, well, and did I read that right? That you were uh, your first book, and and I apologize—I've read one of your books. <laughs> John was very much a fan, and he's like, "You gotta read this." And I'm like, "Okay." For me, um, I'm dyslexic, so I read very slow. So Audible's been a saver. Uh, yeah. But uh, reading your bio, you were 19. Did I read that right yeah. when your first book came out? Yeah. Um, which is crazy because that puts us right around the same age. And I'm like, I can't imagine, you know, being prolific well, enough to write a novel. At, at the age of 19, I mean, I didn't even start using my brain, I think, until I was probably 22. <laughs> it's, uh, it, it was, um, I, you know, that there's this whole thing and, and the Malcolm Gladwell idea of, you know, 10,000 oh, 10, hours. hours, yeah. When I was like seven, it's 1981, and I'm watching The Empire Strikes Back and Raiders of the Lost Ark and Return of the Jedi is about to come out. Mm -hmm. And I've never heard of those. That, yeah, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Those are movies, right? <laughs> and throughout the 80s, I just watched movies. And, you know, there's Die Hard behind me here. And I did my 10,000 hours of study of story throughout my teenage years. And when I wrote Contest, which is a guy fighting aliens inside the New York Public Library mm -hmm. uh, in a big old fight to the death, I wanted to make action movies. And since nobody would give me $100 million to make an action movie, I wrote a book, which would be a $100 million action movie. And as, as Johnny would understand, moving from Contest to iStation was an exponential leap up because iStation is a $150 million movie on paper. Yeah. And this is what I discovered ultimately when I sold the movie rights. Paramount bought the rights to iStation way oh, back Oh, did they? Oh, yeah. And, oh, cool. and, you know, what you suddenly realize is that major movie studios like Paramount, Disney, Fox, Warner Brothers, they only make six or seven 
$100 million movies a year. There aren't mm -hmm. many made. And increasingly, we're going down the part of comic books. Um, right. You know, Marvel, DC, um, these are your standard intellectual property sort of thing. So uh, it's funny. I have gleefully made my books bigger and bigger over the years because I don't have to pay for it in book form. <laughs> yeah, right. sure. You know, you go up to the Great Zoo of China, which is essentially Jurassic Park with dragons. Yeah. In. And Sony bought the rights Ooh. to that. Got a great screenplay done, hired a director, and, you know, this was looking like a $120 million blockbuster movie. Right. And then it fell apart. They didn't make it. Mm -hmm. oh. Well, I think they, uh, maybe that's just on hold. You know, Not, the, rights, oh, no? the rights for that have come back to me. Oh, yep. you hear that a lot. I mean, yeah. I hear about movie. I mean, I've heard about movies that are finished, like they're in the can, but either the rights had reversed back to the original owner or, mm. you know, studio politics played into it or something like that into where they've got a finished movie that will never be shown anywhere unless someone steals a bootleg. And it's like, I mean, it, it's nice that all those people that were involved in the production, I mean, had jobs, they got paid, but, you know, the studio's just sitting on it. It's, um, you know, there are several answers to that. One is studio legal departments suck. Um, <laughs> uh, honestly, there, there, there must be a point where they don't even know what they actually own anymore. And mm -hmm. there's a story I read about um, Stanley Kubrick when Warner Brothers signed him up. They sent him to a warehouse in the Arizona desert, and that's where all the unproduced scripts that they owned were stored. Yeah. And Kubrick goes into the... It's like the Raiders of the Lost Ark warehouse. <laughs> no kidding. And Kubrick goes in, and he's seeing all these screenplays by all these famous writers which have never seen the light of day. So mm -hmm. that, that's the movie business. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Well, one of the other... Uh... Go ahead, Greg. I'm sorry. One of the other ventures that I'm involved in is a, a website called thepullbox.com, and we focus on independent comic book creators. And we just we do reviews and we help promote yeah. their projects and things like that. And when you're walking up and down Artist Alley at these comic cons, and you see just these excellent creative works, and you're and some of them are like, you know, we've produced a book that maybe we'll make some money on, but they're a real hope. Is that in the and I'm usually in the Chicago area, but they've got somebody from a studio that will come by, see their book, and then maybe get it optioned or something like that that could be turned into a screenplay and eventually a TV series or a movie or something. Um, in fact, I had just read, um, I just read Oblivion, uh, the Tom Cruise movie Oblivion. They produced like a graphic novel. And they didn't do a large production run. They did like maybe 50 copies of it. And they took it to Comic-Cons. And then it was immediately snatched up by a production company. And then later on they found out that was the entire plan. They never really planned on producing this comic. They just wanted oh, it smart. to get picked up. And it looked great. I've seen some of the pages. I'm like, yep, it looks like a storyboard. And that was their entire plan. And they made a, you know, I like Oblivion. I think that's a pretty good movie. <laughs> so and it right. worked. Yeah, and, and that movie was... um. You know, a lot of people have their issues with Tom Cruise, but you got to give him credit. That was a time when he did Oblivion and Edge of Tomorrow. And yeah, yeah. Know, two interesting science fiction Absolutely. films, which are not, you know, old intellectual property. They were, at least they were new, and mm -hmm. credit Tom Cruise a lot of credit for that. Yeah. 
I think uh, I call the movie "Live Die Repeat," but I think it's "Edge of Tomorrow." It is yeah, Edge of Tomorrow because their slogans, yeah. their, their slogan when they were selling it said "Live Die Repeat," and everybody thought that that's what the movie's name was. They didn't see at the bottom; it said "Edge of Tomorrow." But that's a fantastic sci-fi movie. Like that's one of those if it turns on the TV, uh, I will sit down and watch it no matter yeah. where it is. And I'm almost a little upset it didn't <laughs> like I didn't catch it at the beginning type of type of. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm yeah. really seeing a turn like in Hollywood going more towards like that classic sci-fi. I mean, Edge of Tomorrow was still a huge budget, but I just watched uh, last night on Amazon. I watched uh, Guns Akimbo with Daniel Radcliffe. Uh, it's yeah. it's like, you know, slightly future. So maybe like 2050, I think, or something like that. And, you know, everybody's got their faces in the phones, just like, you know, Orwell said. and uh, And it was like, he's a troll he's an internet troll so he starts going off on this one show where it's like people hunting people and he's like this is crap you guys are stupid for watching it they bust into his apartment capture him they bolt to um they look like 40 or 45s to his hands like they bolt them to his hands so he can't do anything but pull a trigger and now he's on this internet game show of of that he's going to be hunted and it's like the only way to win is to kill your opponent but not big budget i mean big budget enough because they've got car chases and guns you know i don't even know about explosions but lots of lots of ammo being wasted um but just like that the heart of it was just that pure science fiction what if kind of stuff and so Mm -hmm. that that was it same thing with uh upgrade that was a movie that came out a couple years yeah i just watched that actually yesterday was upgrade i watched that yesterday yeah yeah yeah, Have you seen that one, Matt? Upgrade, where the guy gets that thing in the back of his neck. No, I've heard about it, but I haven't seen it. Yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting. I don't know if it's good, so, but it's it's interesting. As a as a creator, like, what do you, um, like what like right now? Are you are you reading other people's works? Are you watching other things, or does that kind of dilute some of your creative uh, process? I I tend not to read other fiction books when I'm writing a book. Mm-hmm. But then when I finish, I, I feel the need to be entertained. And so, you know, in terms of fiction in the last year or two, I got put on to Dan Simmons' Hyperion. And um, mm. it's hardcore sci-fi. And the first book, there are four books. And um, the first one is a bit of a slog. But once you get through it, you're rewarded because book two and book three are amazing. And it's just got this fantastic uh, science fiction. The use of um, wormholes that people have figured out oh, how right. to create a door that you step through the door and you go from, you know, from Earth and you step out and you're on Saturn and you go through another door and you're on Alpha Centauri or something like that. Right. And, but then he creates some very, very clever stuff with the doors. And there's actually a river that flows through the capital city planet through a door it flows through that door into another planet and it's this tourist site that you you go down this river and you pass <laughs> through you know 60 planets it's like and small world they, after all but small universe yeah. after all yeah, and, then yeah. You, and by the third book spoiler alert um some bad guys uh, there's been a big civil war and they've turned off the doors oh and, and so now somebody goes through, figures out how to open it, but the other end of the door might have been frozen over by ice or something like that. Oh, oh it, 
it's an uh, it's an imaginative leap. And I suppose to answer your question, increasingly I'm reading science fiction because of the imagination. I find mm -hmm. I see another thriller about a virus being released around the world. I will throw it against the wall <laughs> because it's just lazy. Mm -hmm. And science fiction is, you know, even go back to the classics like Foundation by Asimov. Um, mm -hmm. If you haven't read Foundation and you're a big Star Wars fan, I mean, there's a lot of Star Wars that, that mm -hmm. or Star Wars lifted a lot from Foundation. And it's just stunningly good. The imagination is out of this world. And I appreciate that in a book. Yeah. I, I, I definitely agree. Uh... on books. If they don't get me by page... 25 i put them down i work yeah. too hard stuff fun and unputdownable i think everybody else should do the same <laughs> you you might like uh from dennis taylor it he calls it the Bobaverse. right and it is the setup is like uh not quite a bill gates level tech giant but someone who's on his way up right. and in the first couple pages he dies but they have he he's talking about he you know his company's being bought for some bajillion dollars or something like that so he went to the service where they're going to freeze his brain so that if they ever can bring him back they will but so he dies he wakes up i don't know how many hundreds of years later but the world is completely changed they've digitized his brain and they want him to be a living ai for deep space exploration ships and so he's mm figuring out how to be this new kind of being and his name is Bob and Bob finds out that well he can clone himself so he starts making copies of himself and so the Bobaverse is born and it's all you know the, the future of space travel is 3D printing and because that's how they can manufacture ships and it just goes into there it's all based using real physics which I find fascinating um, so it's just a lot of fun I mean it, it was part adventure and just part exploration and just cool science fiction fun yeah well, they're, they're, science fiction uh, uh, sometimes these things sort of move in waves too there's galsy's old man's war there's the forever war by halderman um i i didn't i i started but didn't finish it but altered carbon as well you know these notions mm -hmm. of you know your your Receiving. brain forever and giving you a new body mm -hmm. um, even actually what you're saying there had echoes in um, uh, Westworld season three. Yeah. Yep. Uh, Loris made copies of herself. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, I don't know if you're Westworld fans, but. Spoiler I love, alert. I love, <laughs> season one is phenomenal. I watched yes, it fantastic. twice. Yes. Season two, you know, again, sometimes people get too consumed by their own cleverness. <laughs> and season three, they figure out what actually made them good again. And season three was was fantastic. Um, season three I, was a bit of a it, slow burn for me, but I got to get back to it because I got to give it another shot. I stopped like I think five episodes in. Yeah, it it, um, it promised a bit more than it delivered, but mm -hmm. the idea that you didn't know who was inside some which body. Correct. Yeah. Basically, was... allowed Ed Harris to hate to say the wonderful line, "Am I me?" And mm -hmm. they wrote the whole thing so he could say that. When you've got a character who goes, "Am I me?" That's pretty awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so you do work a little bit of uh, science fiction into into your books and whatnot. How do you yeah. decide, like, 
how much to go, how much are you going to go for realism, how much are you going to go into science fiction, um, or even just overall, you know, I wouldn't even really call the like the Pierce Brosnan James Bond movies science fiction, but they borderlined a little bit with some of their yeah. some of their no. fantastical kind of things. I I want I want to go to the edge. I I once had a publisher who wanted me to write more like Tom Clancy and make it more you know deliberate, slow, and real. And I said I just don't enjoy mm-hmm. that. I'd much prefer the Pierce Brosnan, even the Roger Moore James Bond level of believability. Yeah, uh, you know Johnny. Johnny talked about Seven Deadly Wonders, or as it was called in Australia, mm-hmm. Seven Ancient Wonders. Um, you know, this is like Indiana Jones on steroids. Yep. In the present day, a hero going to these ancient places with booby traps. And I always said to myself with every Jack West book, like Raiders of the Lost Ark, or even like Back to the Future, I was always allowed one moment of paranormal or science fiction in the book. Uh, because we're dealing with these ancient booby traps, ancient powers, everything has to be grounded in reality, but you are allowed one little moment where you can stretch science. I mean, hey, Secret Runners of New York, which in America was retitled Secret Runners, that's full straight time travel. You know, that's, that's young kids going through time, going 22 years into the future. And that's just, you put that straight out there. But for the others, for Ice Station with Scarecrow, for Seven Deadly Wonders with Jack West, it's got to be grounded in reality, but you can take science to the extreme. In Ice Station, the book that sort of catapulted me around the world, you know, you're talking, there's this remote ice station, they find something buried in the ice, a, you know, a hundred million year old layer of ice, and they find this thing made of metal. You know, what could be in that? They think it's a spaceship, they check the outline, it looks like a spaceship. I give it a real explanation for what it is, but I love the idea of science fiction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's very, real uh, very Crichton-esque. I mean, mm-hmm. that's... And, and even, I mean, everybody knows Crichton for, uh, um, you know, Jurassic. Jurassic Park, things like that. But I really like, like, his other, like Airframe was great. Time, or, uh, uh, Timeline. Yeah, Timeline. Timeline was great. The book, I thought, was... Yeah, the book was phenomenal. phenomenal. I agree. Um, and I, I actually really like... Eaters of the Dead. Congo. Yeah, what was that? yeah. Brain was 20 Congo. years ahead. Oh, Congo. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah, um, there's a there's a story about a, a fantastic book and having all the right players as far as a movie goes and execution just didn't quite cut it. <laughs> I think they might be trying to do Congo again. Are they? Think, oh, really? Doing it the right way? I think the effects now... Given what they did with the apes in Planet of the Apes, yeah, I think oh, Kirk phenomenal, yeah, yeah, that it's was a good. Project now, and you're right; they had all the cast in the world. That Jurassic Park came out, and so Hollywood then jumped on every Crichton book. Right. And not many of them were that good. Right. They did Closure. They did Rising Sun. They did Congo. So None of them let, Jurassic I will still watch Thirteenth Warrior anytime yeah. it's on. Love that's a good it. book too. that's a phenomenal yeah, book. that is a good book hey matt going right. back to what you were talking about where you know michael crichton had that jurassic park and everybody wanted to grab michael crichton books and start doing them do you think a big problem with that is the directors didn't understand what they had you know what i mean yeah. like and and i guess i'm trying what i'm trying to do is throw that question on to you when you're dealing with hollywood or 
and you're you know you're talking to a director or you're talking to a producer who sees money signs but he doesn't see how cool the story actually is or he doesn't get it does that frustrate you does that make you go oh it's gonna it's gonna bomb you don't care about this yeah they don't uh it's you know i i've learned a lot uh being here in hollywood and i've got a script which is uh on the verge of being made right now and i'm attached to direct it uh let me restart that michael crichton is my idol and michael okay. Crichton is my idol because um i've read everything he's 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 written especially the early stuff but crichton mm. was writing books writing screenplays like twister uh-huh. and writing and directing films like the great train robbery mm-hmm. uh, runaway um he was uh, and actually he he wrote and directed the original westworld movie with your brenner um which mm-hmm. the show is is based on right I love the idea of writing some books, writing scripts and making movies. What you discover with filmmaking is that the studio or the financiers, they don't see the craft, they don't see the time, they don't see the effort you put into every single shot. If your movie is a $50 million movie, all they see is $50 million. Mm -hmm. And all they want to see then is the $50 million of a cost to market it. So now you're at 100. Mm-hmm. And then all they're worried about is can you make $200 million at the box office because right. the theatres take half. So for them, it's just a, it's a, it's a monolith of your $50 bucks. So when they saw Crichton's Jurassic Park pop, they just looked at all the others and they said, hey, if we can get Sam Jackson and Sharon Stone and put him in Sphere, one of his other books, it'll be a hit. <laughs> and, I mean, Sphere is the movie. It's just... Yeah, on and on and on. (laughs) So, um, book is great. The the book is Dustin Hoffman was in there too, wasn't he? Sorry, wasn't Dustin Hoffman in that one too? It was Dustin Hoffman, same thing. Yeah. So, question: It's it's. I'm never going to be one of those authors who sells his his book to Hollywood and goes, "Wow, wow, wow!" You know, they change stuff. They always change stuff. You, mm-hmm. You've seen your favorite books get changed by movie studios. Right. Right. You're lucky if the executives have actually read the book. You know, they might have read a one-page summary written by a 22-year-old college student, and they go, oh, wow, this is a cool story. It's about these Marines in Antarctica at this ice station. That sounds pretty good. Sure. Um, so as an author, the only power you have is not to sell your rights. Mm. And... Every time I've sold movie rights to my books, and I've sold them to Disney, Fox, Paramount, Sony, ABC TV, I've always looked at the people and thought, will, will this person be true to my book? And for whatever reason, they haven't got made, and sometimes they're very banal and silly reasons, and the main reason is they're too expensive. But- well, well, okay. So I'm looking at just – let's just look at – let's just break it down to – the the um the seven deadly i always you always confuse me with the title behind you because why is it changed why did it change from seven ancient wonders to seven deadly wonders why did that change yeah why did that change okay do do, Amer- do americans not know what ancient means or what's going yeah. on? <laughs> do you know why uh, my american publisher was worried that viewers wouldn't be aware that it was an action story they thought people might think it was like a history book and so they said, you know, can you call it Seven Deadly Wonders? Okay. And, and they said to me, you know, like 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 Seven Deadly Sins. And I said, yeah, I get it. Um, <laughs> you know, I 
I can't say I necessarily agreed with it, but right. it's not it's not terrible. No, so not. It's not the hill you're going to die on. So yeah, it's not the hill you're going to die on. And I mean, hey, if we made I've sold the television rights for this recently to a big company here in LA, and it'd be very interesting to see what they call the TV show. Yeah, it's a TV and, show. Yeah, so I I used to sell movie rights. Now I increasingly sell TV rights. Well, I mean, with Netflix and Amazon, I mean, Amazon Prime, I don't, that's my, that was my idea. Dude, I need you to talk to Netflix. I need you to say, this is the Huntsman <laughs> series. This is what's going on, okay? Because it's funny, people will complain about a three-hour movie, but they'll binge 12 episodes like that, right? right? Book, a book makes for about eight episodes of television. Yeah, exactly. And I thought to myself, mm-hmm. oh, man, I hope that happens. And I'm, I'm going to say this. I know you have no control, but whoever is listening to this possibly that has control, Chris Hemsworth would make a terrific Jack West. Do you agree or not? Oh, yeah. He'd be great. Yeah. He would be the perfect. He's Australian. He, You see it's Extraction? I did. I did. Yeah. yeah Tell me that wasn't Jack. That's like, Jack. It, it was yeah. It's Jack yeah. West. By the way, I want to ask you real quick about the Jack West uh, character, because he's yeah. my favorite character. Um, Greg, if you don't know, he's kind of like Indiana Jones meets um, Captain America. That's how yeah. I view him. Yeah. Right? yeah. And the only he has like the Winter Soldier arm. Like yeah. he has that metal arm. And he then I think is the how you say this in French, the two resistance. You put the you put the um uh, a fireman's hat on That's and right. it makes sense man because he's like going into caves where shit can fall on his head and stuff and i thought to myself that's brilliant because when i was a kid and i was sitting downstairs and i was being indiana jones i wanted a better symbol than that hat and then read it and i'm i'm like i'm 30 years old and i'm reading this i'm like that's brilliant that's freaking brilliant i love it so i just love that little that small little detail you put into that character i loved it it's um it's hard to see it in that poster, which is my favorite. That's why it's up. Um, he's actually hanging from a, a rope at the top there, right? With the fireman's hat and the falcon around him, right? Horse, and yeah. It's at the, the fireman's hat. It was. It, it's useful and it's iconic. Yeah. And I loved Indiana Jones for having his fedora. Me too. Water drips on your head, and a fireman's hat makes it fall off the back, and things fall on your head. So, I, I I've been doing some sketches for the last book in the series because I've now done can we seven, see five, four, three, and two. <laughs> I love to have like a broken fireman's helmet in the middle of the cover on the last. Oh, one. don't do that to me, Brack man. <laughs> Oh, have okay. you had fans like yeah. cosplay Jack West? Have you seen cosplayers come up of people you've written? I I have had um uh, somebody came up to the signing desk at a in Australia there was a comic con thing called Supernova, and oh. I had a woman come dressed as Elizabeth Gant, a character named Fox from the Scarecrow right books she was dressed completely in snow camouflage gear and she had gant on her name patch um i did have actually i had a kid i had like a 12 year old kid come to a signing dressed completely as jack west and he had had like a silver sort of glove on one arm i had the fireman's helmet um the arm i should stress comes from the first book 
where Jack has just saved a baby and lava is falling across this doorway and the only way mm. to open it is to stick his hand through the lava to pull a lever. And so he turns to his inventor buddy and says, you know, can you build me a new arm if I do this? And he says, I'll build you one that's better than the one you were born with. And so Jack has to thrust his hand through the lava and in the moments before his arm falls off, he has to pull this lever. So he gets them out, but he loses the arm. And so he's, his buddy builds him the, the, the titanium arm, which uh, nice. is going to definitely come in handy in the last book. So you, yeah. you can give your character. <laughs> My heroes from Scarecrow with the cuts on his eyes and mm -hmm. Jack with the arm. When you meet a hero in a Matthew Riley book, they will be in some way scarred. Uh, even the heroine in Great Zoo of China, CJ, she has all these scars down one side of her face. And you find out that came from an alligator attack where she saved a little kid at an alligator farm. They always are people who can get hurt. And right mm -hmm. from the moment you meet them, I've given you some reason to know these people are not indestructible. I'm going to put them through, you know, gigantic trials and tribulations, but they're going to get hurt. They have to get hurt. And you'll know that from the moment you meet them. Yeah. Hey, uh, with Scarecrow. I'm sorry, go ahead, Greg. As I said, some of the brilliance, I mean, we, we mentioned the Die Hard poster behind you. I mean, some of that brilliance even of that movie when yeah. it came out was we had we had action heroes like you know, Stallone Arnold and, and Arnold, yeah. and they were they were just indestructible. And then here comes Bruce Willis that everybody thought was a comedian and a musician. Yeah. And turns out to be one of the best action movie heroes that Hollywood has produced because he was mortal and because he was flawed. And at the end of that movie where he's just beat to shit and he's just limping through and you're like, well, this is not going to go well. And right. I don't know. I, I can see that. I can see the, the draw to humanizing your, your superhuman type character, your action heroes. So yeah, absolutely. Cool. Um, have you thought of who you would think would be Scarecrow? Um, I, I did a while ago, but actors get old really quickly. Right. <laughs> and you, you might, it's funny because especially with, and it's, it's a funny thing because I'm going through this with this project, male actors, they sort of peak in their early 30s. I think Bruce Willis might have been about 31 when he did Die Hard. Mm -hmm. Even, you know, your Chris Hemsworths, you know, yeah. he's what, 36, 37 now. Right, yeah. You see him in, if you watch Thor now, right. he looks so young to you. Yes. Right, yes. And he's beefcake and he's built, but he looks visibly younger than he is now. We've, which, we've watched this guy grow mm -hmm. from man into a full man. Um, the funny thing is, for, for Scarecrow, I think Chris Hemsworth would be just as good. Uh, in, in fact, almost any actor named Chris in Hollywood could be a great scarecrow. I was going to say, Hemworth has got a couple brothers that you maybe you could bring in. Yeah. Hey, I think it should be Keanu. <laughs> I think he'd be terrific because he has that steel look, but he also has that, like, Shane's one of those guys that, Shane is actually the guy's actual name, Greg. It's Shane Scarecrow Schofield. Mm -hmm. um, he's a, uh, I kind of always pictured him as a cross between uh, John McClane, actually, and I can't think of a, a, some sort of really good soldier because um, he's a Marine, correct? He, he's a Marine. Um, and the funny thing with, with Keanu Reeves, I mean, he must be 
I think he's 50. Oh, yeah. He's 50. Oh, he I think he's pushing 60. He's like he mid 50s. Eternally young. Yeah. And the John Wick movies, um, they're a really interesting sort of piece of film filmmaking mm -hmm. because it's funny. I see the John Wick movies, Atomic Blonde. They're actually not the kinds of movies that I enjoy. I. I prefer watching a Die Hard or I watch watching my heroes get beaten up to watch mm -hmm. John Wick run through a room. It's very stylized sort of violence where, you know, you're sort of like mm -hmm. <laughs> because they're not firing any blanks. The guns are all made of rubber and they just put the the effects in after the fact. Muzzle flash, yeah. And I don't care about henchman number 27. Um, you know, I watch these movies and literally it's just an endless stream of henchmen, at least in Kill Bill Volume 1. You know, oh. Uma Thurman used her sword to kill the crazy 88. You know, it was, let's go, let's go through 88 guys and get them with a samurai sword. At least you knew what you were getting. But mm -hmm. I, to me, I, I like to watch somebody who has to struggle with every battle uh, rather than go, okay, here we go. We're going for five minutes of shooting henchmen. Right. So did you enjoy Atomic Blonde, that staircase scene? She got her ass kicked. You know, I've tried Atomic Blonde a few, a few times, and I've never got through it. No? Okay. Yeah. Okay. I, I like, again, good style. What, what happens with some of these movies is increasingly now we're seeing stunt coordinators becoming film yes. directors. That's who mm -hmm. I was going to suggest for Seven Deadly Wonders. For your yeah. Netflix series, but you don't have control over that. Sorry. Well, <laughs> these guys now become so big, they're making John Wick or Extraction. The yeah. guy mm -hmm. with an Extraction, Sam Hargrave, was the stunt coordinator for a bunch of his previous movies. So, mm -hmm. and let's be honest, in a in a Hollywood movie like Fast and Furious, mm -hmm. all the action scenes are done by a dedicated stunt filmmaking team. Right. Mm -hmm. The film's director is probably not even there. So they specialize in this sort of thing. And so right. we're getting, mm -hmm. it's a, almost a, a new genre, the John Wick genre of 95 minutes of stunt scene, so, small break, another stunt scene. Mm -hmm. just, and I, I get that there's a market for that, but I know I'm not that market. Okay. Interesting. Well, I think it's, I mean, I've been, I've been watching like, Asian import films since my late teens, early 20s. And kind of that style of filmmaking you're talking about. I mean, I remember watching The Raid yep. 12 years ago, maybe. I mean, it, so, I mean, it's very much not a new thing for me to see some of the style, but it, it seems like a lot of people are like, oh, have you seen this new thing? I'm like, dude, that's been like, broaden your horizons because there's a whole other film market out there that is phenomenal. Yeah. Um, Greg, I believe in college you told me about Gung Fu or Gun Fu. And I Gun thought, Fu. what yeah. is that? And then all of a sudden I see John Wick doing it. Yeah. But that was like 20 yeah. years later. It's gun. It's gun 20 years ago. That's it. It's, it's stylized gunfights. Mm -hmm. Again, maybe I just sort of show my age, but I don't believe the hero's going in. I don't believe the hero's ever in danger. Um, mm -hmm. I, I, okay, I, I see where you're going. Um, I mean, I remember, again, No Country for Old Men, which is not really an action movie, but as a piece of sustained suspense. Mm -hmm. You know, that 
really sort of grabbed you and twisted you and then twisted you some more. And I felt he was in actual jeopardy. And, and the villain, you know, played by Javier Bardem, was, you know, genuinely yeah. scary villain with his mm-hmm. cow-punching, dramatic yeah. drill yeah. thing. Yeah, what, that, what a weird weapon to choose out of a hitman to carry around a tank like that. <laughs> then, well, I, can't, I can't remember the name of the film. I want to say Eastern Promises, but I'm not sure. Yes, with uh, Hugo Morgison, Mor- Mortensen, right? Mortensen, Hugo? yeah. Mortensen, yeah. Uh, the guy who played Aragorn in the yeah. Lord of the Rings. He, he did a, a Russian mobster movie. But yeah, you're right. I mean, you're. it's not just him, but his family. I mean, you're, you're genuinely, genuinely concerned for their safety and it does add a different level to the movie yeah well one that comes to mind as we discuss this one that i think bridges the gap very well is taken with liam neeson yes 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 a lot of henchmen get killed in taken but there's something visceral and real in the whole thing yeah that that Mm -hmm. me taken taken one yeah i agree yeah taken one and i I'm a father. I have daughters. I mean, so yeah, that whole film was, you're like, oh, and you know, you hope that somewhere around me, like, I want to do that. I want, I want to be able to do that if anything yeah. happens. I'm not saying I want to intentionally do it, but if it happens, I want to be prepared to do it. But, uh, but yeah. Was, and by the way, I think Henchman 26 will be my Halloween costume this year. I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Henchman 26. Oh, yeah. That's me. <laughs> Hey, Matt, so if you ever you're... see me at a, if you ever at a Comic Con in Chicago area, I might come up to you and be Henchman Twenty Six. So be prepared for that. All right, <laughs> um, Matt. When you're when you're designing, this is something I've always wanted to ask you. When you're designing, like when you designed Seven Deadly Wonders, was that just an intent of one book, or did you have this grand design of what it's turning into? So the, the, the honest truth is Seven Wonders is a self-contained story. Okay. Seven Wonders has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Right. Uh, I did leave a couple of loose threads in there, which I could take up later. And I enjoyed it so much that I thought, I'll do a sequel. And I'd actually learned, if I permit me the long answer. Um, oh, go I ahead. Ice Station. When I wrote the sequel to Ice Station, it was called Area 7. And then the third book was called Scarecrow. And I met a lot of people who never realized Area 7 was a sequel to Ice Station. They read Ice Station and then they read Scarecrow because they knew the hero of Ice Station was a guy named Scarecrow. And it was a bit like, you know, James Bond movies all have different titles. They're not called James Bond 2 or James Bond Mm -hmm. 3. Mm -hmm. And so when I wrote Seven, we'll call it Seven Deadly Wonders, um, when I wrote that and I enjoyed it, I thought I want to write a sequel. And so I thought, well, why don't I call the next one The Six Sacred Stones? And I'll start a countdown. So it'll be The Seven, seven Ancient Wonders, Six Sacred Stones, Five Greatest Warriors, Four Legendary Kingdoms. And so when I did the second one, Six Sacred Stones, that was when I started to think of a far larger series. Mm-hmm. Um, I gave myself a little escape valve after The Five Greatest Warriors. So Six Stones and Five Warriors are essentially one story. So Seven Wonders is one story. Mm-hmm. Six Stones and Five Warriors is another one. And I gave myself a rest after that because these books wear you out. And after Five Warriors, I I did a new Scarecrow book, Scarecrow and the Army of Thieves. I mm-hmm. wrote the Great Sword of China. 
you know, did a few standalones because you don't want to be writing series your whole life. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to jump out and do other stuff. And I, I loved writing the tournament. That's one of my favorites. And I want uh, that's I just bought that book. I'm going to start reading that actually tonight. Well, it's got the quite explicit sex scenes in it. Very popular uh, with nice Matt. And <laughs> I mean, it's it's set during a chess tournament in Constantinople in 1546. Oh, and, see, you had and, me at that setup. <laughs> and there's Constantinople, you, yeah. You, you imagine being a, an action thriller writer who calls his publisher and says, I've written this book in secret. It's about a chess tournament in the 1500s. And they go, okay. Because uh, every, this, uh, I'm on a tangent of a tangent. I will get back to the Seven Wonders series in a no, second. No, go ahead. No, go but for it. At some point in their life, every commercially successful author turns up at their publisher and says, I want to win a prize. I want to win an award. And I reckon I can. And I'm sure they thought when I wrote Tournament, they go, oh, Matt Riley's gone off his rocker and now he thinks he's going to win an award. And the Tournament, it's it's how I would do The Name of the Rose. They mm. get, the British delegation gets to this tournament. They've invited every, every king in Europe has been invited to send their best player at chess to Constantinople but the Sultan's going to cheat. There's going to be poisoning of players. There's sex parties at night and there's a murder on the first night. And so the Sultan asks one of the English uh, members of the English delegation to find the killer while the tournament goes on. And then there's a second murder and there's a third and the bodies are piling up. And it's fan. I love tournament is just, it's just Matthew Riley going bonkers I'm writing this down because I gotta read this. Yeah. Uh, how do you say the character's um, Elizabeth's uh, teacher's name? How do you say his last name? Is it Ash Ashtam? Askam. Askam. Thank you. Ro- Roger Askam, and he was okay. a real person. So the funny thing about the tournament is there's a 13 year old girl named Bess who will grow up to be Queen Elizabeth I. And Askam was her real life teacher, and Henry VIII is the King of England at the time, so he's the uh-huh. one who. Was- the invite so michelangelo has been hired to build the chess set ivan the terrible is there representing you know the duchy of muscovy and um you know all these people who were actually alive in 1546 which was the peak of the islamic empire yeah i had enormous amount of fun and so that come back from my tangent from tangent i did seven wonders six sacred stones five greatest warriors did a bunch of standalones and said okay I want to come back to Jack West, and if I come back to do the four, then fans will expect me to do three, two, and one. And so Mm -hmm. Four Legendary Kingdoms comes out in 2016. It's been seven years since Five Warriors. So I decide I'm just going to make everybody age eight years. So eight Mm -hmm. years has passed. Lily has gone from being, you know, roughly 12 years old to being 20 years old. And... Four Legendary Kingdoms is just like this. It's more like a Scarecrow book than a Jack West book. It's yeah. an jolt of an adventure book. It's literally like it's like Indiana Jones being put into the Hunger Games. Uh, that's that's sort of what Four Kingdoms would be. Jack is thrown into this giant contest where he's got to fight for his life. But having been having been rested for eight years, Four Kingdoms starts with Jack waking up in a cell with his head shaven. And then the door bursts open and someone comes in trying to kill him. He's got to defend himself. And, you know, that's right. paid. 
And so then Four Kingdoms laid some threads for the Three Secret Cities, which rolls into the Two Lost Mountains, which is the one that comes out in October. And then that, all of it is setting up the final one, the one something something. I don't tell anybody the title. <laughs> I don't even tell my publisher the title. Till you I don't tell you the title? Okay, I thought you no. give us something. But um, let's talk well, about I, the... I had read that titles are a struggle sometimes for for you in particular. That was on your bio page. You know, early on they were with the Jack West books. No, I've sort of I've sort of got them right each time. So. Well, and I, and I want to ask. Sorry, John. I know I'm cutting you off here, but this no, applies. Um, so the the book series that I'm reading right now is Jim Butcher's The Dresden Files, the yep. uh, very noir crime detective. I love it. Yep. Um, and kind of along the lines where he's like aging his characters as he goes. But one of my favorite, uh, he's only put out two books is, is Patrick Rothfuss uh, in the Name of the Wind, and the, it's the King Killer Chronicles. Now, um, Pat comes from uh, Wisconsin, where I'm at, and I actually met him uh, in college. He was like a friend of a friend. And I remember this was like, I'm going to say it was before 2000, so the late 90s. And we're hanging out. We're college kids, you know, drinking and having a good time. And he's like, he's like, well, I'm writing a book. And I'm like, that's cool. And I'm like, can I see it? And he's like, no, because he was a writer and he just didn't want to send that out. But so his book comes out. It blows up huge. He gets the second one out there, and now it's been, I, I don't even know how many years it's been since, but he takes a lot of crap online from people who are like, I mean, he's setting up charities, he's doing events, he he wrote another kind of like offshoot book, and everybody's like, dude, when are you going to write the third book? When are you going to write the, the last book? So do you, when you're planning out a series like that, and, I, you know, again, I've read Pat's words, he's like, it took me 20 years to write the first one because he wrote it when he was like a teenager started and, and came later the second one came out in a less than 20 years he's like what do you guys so i'm and i'm pulled either way i can see his side of things but as a fan you're like oh my god when can we get more um so as an author when you're doing that that book series how do you plan that out and like then how do you handle the pressure of your fans just clamoring after you and sometimes just honestly giving you some shit that you're not right all the time yeah sorry matt <laughs> yeah. you know it's a funny thing first be careful what you wish for you know <laughs> this is the dream you dream yeah. of writing a book which you know catches hold and trust me having fans is a very 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 good problem to have mm-hmm. um you know I, i'm i let me digress again I think it's so funny. You meet authors at writers' festivals or book festivals. What a lot of people don't give enough credit to is luck. That you write your book and you might find the right editor, you might find the right publisher who releases it correctly, puts a good jacket on it. I wrote Contest and I self-published it and got discovered that way by a publisher in Australia named Macmillan. And they were looking for a new kind of author. And a, an editor walked into the store and bought my self-published book. Now, that's possible. But there's no way I knew they were looking for that. Right, I got right. lucky. No other publisher called me. No other publisher found my self-published book. Now, for, for Patrick, I know, I know the guy who was adapting uh, Name of the Wind for, for Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know the issues they had there. 
like a lot of pro sports people, Serena Williams or Tiger Woods, when they turn up to a tournament, there are media obligations. They're the big mm -hmm. names. So when when I say be careful what you wish for, he, you become a name. You become a mm -hmm. headline. And that means if you go to a festival, you're going to do the newspaper, you're going to do the radio, you might do the television. That's that's part of the game. And so I, I in terms of what you choose to take on then, um, you know, you have to manage that with your obligations to deliver a book. The other thing I'd say is never read the comments. You know, if mm -hmm. you, you post something on Twitter and it's controversial, you know, don't read the comments. Uh, you know, it's you, 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 you're Patrick Rothfuss, you know. <laughs> yeah. If you've got million followers, are you going to get upset by the guy who has four followers who wrote back to you and said <laughs> you're a uh, Be careful what you wish for. Don't read the comments. Yeah. There you nice. go. All right. Yeah. And remember, your fans are your fans because mm -hmm. you write books. Sorry, Johnny, I know you've got questions, so we'll let no. you go. But No, no, go I, for it. I can tell you from my social media, if I do a post about the upcoming book, the numbers shoot through the roof. If mm -hmm. I do a post about walking my dog, it goes like that. Mm -hmm. The people who follow me on social media want to read my books. You know, I get yeah. that. And I've, I've sold 8 million books around the world. It's given me a very, uh, a very good lifestyle. But my fans are the, the reason I've got that. So um, you, you always remember what it is you do. And, you know, mm -hmm. I entertain people with words on a page. Sorry, Johnny, go, go ahead. Please. No, no, I'm, I'm enjoying listening to you. I, uh, I'm one of those fans. So I, I, I'm, a pr I'm very appreciative of your humbleness and the way you look at things. In fact, um, I, I wasn't going to bring this up because everybody brings this up. In fact, Greg and I talked about not bringing it up, but I'm going to bring it up now. You have a DeLorean, right? I do. <laughs> and your DeLorean, it's in Australia, correct? It is. It is. is it? Did it? Did they transfer it to electronic now, or they would do it? They were, they were well advanced to make my DeLorean electric, and COVID hit. Oh, was, and it was going to be these guys who do it for. They have a YouTube channel. They were filming it. They were documenting. Oh, nice. And COVID has disrupted it. So unfortunately, it stopped it dead in the water. But yes, oh, but my, it, I'm in a, it'll my be DeLorean is in, is in Australia. You'll be it'll be kicked back up once this COVID thing's okay, right? Once once we get through this, okay. So if you can give me that link, we'd love to link it up at the bottom of this uh, podcast so that people that are listening to this could start watching those guys. Uh, uh, so I haven't seen any footage yet myself, so okay. I don't know. Okay. Is it? Have you? Are you keeping it like a straight DeLorean, or are you modding it to the uh, the time machine? If someone owns a DeLorean, you you know they're a fan of Back to the Future. I'm just wondering, are you modding it to the time machine, or are you keeping it like a DeLorean? No, I'm keeping it like a DeLorean. Okay. The full DeLorean story is: I bought it. Somebody brought it to Australia. We drive on the other side of the road in Australia, so I converted okay. it to right-hand drive, and then I moved to America. And so, <laughs> so I wasn't going to convert it back. So I said to my buddy who lives in Canberra, I said, hey, do you want to drive around in my DeLorean? You know, I'll, I'll pay the insurance <laughs> of the registration and keep, keep it running. And uh, 
And so he he's had my my friggin' DeLorean in his. <laughs> you might think it's a great idea to be minding Matt Riley's DeLorean, but I don't think it really is. So I think he's doing me a favor. The DeLorean is fantastic. You pull up to fill it up with gas, and people ask if they can have their photo taken with it. Oh, absolutely, Doc Brown. Where's the flux capacitor? <laughs> it makes people smile. I. It's funny that the. It's such a joyful thing. Right. Um, even on a really, really hot day in Australia, 110 degree Fahrenheit day, I actually tried to, the surface, the stainless steel gets so hot. You know, you say, ow. I actually tried to see if I could fry an egg on the bonnet. <laughs> and? It didn't add nothing. Just got no. egg on the uh, so I had to wash it off. <laughs> Um, that's the that's the kind of idiot I am. Uh, it, it's it's the other thing I have, which you, you can ask me about all this is um I got the hand solo in carbonite. Yeah, well. we're yeah, definitely going to hit to that. that. We're definitely going to hit to that, and I'm going to hit that in one second. And, but the reason I wanted to bring up the DeLorean is because of the way you just explained it that it puts people's it it gives people like they love it, and you yeah. don't mind the attention, and that's what that's why I transitioned to that story is because. You bought it from a guy, if I remember reading this right, you bought it from a guy who hated the attention. That's correct. That's right. Yeah, oh, and, really? and so, yeah, so you got yeah. it understanding, okay, this is what's going to happen. So let's have fun with it. Yeah. And that's what I dig about you. I, I, I mean, I would drive it, when I had a new book out, I would drive it to the opening book event where I did a talk and a signing and I, people could have their photo, they could sit in it, they could do whatever they wanted. I was in the Canberra Writers Festival. That's where my buddy was, was minding the car. So we parked it out the front of the festival site, this big 700-person hall. And it, it, you walked past my DeLorean, and I just opened the doors and said, if people want to sit in it, have their photos, you know, go for it. It is. It's, I, I, I am in, it's funny, with the books, you might say, you know, what business am I in? I'm in the joy business. I'm sure. trying to give people joy. I want people to sit down with a Matthew Riley book and go, this guy tells a good story, strap yourself in like on a roller coaster and go for the ride. And the DeLorean, yeah, that guy I bought it from, he had a pinball machine store. Weird story. But he he hated it. He hated people bugging him at the gas station. And I'm not quite sure why he bought it in the first place. Yeah, right. It, it's like if you dig back to the future, I mean, that car, it's a work of art. It is a sleek, beautiful, gull-wing, stainless steel work of 80s art. Yeah. And the John not, DeLorean story is yeah. totally compelling as well. And it wasn't fast enough. And making it electric... <laughs> Could make it fast enough. <laughs> you mean, are you saying you could get up to 88 miles per hour? Yeah. <laughs> the, the speedometer doesn't even get to 88. The speedometer is <laughs> 85. They had to make so, the movie. All right, Johnny, John, uh, you, Matt, Johnny, Matt, how disappointed. What's Johnny, that? have you ever sat in a DeLorean? I have not, but I'm hoping this podcast goes so well that one day Matt just takes <laughs> us over to Australia so we can sit down. <laughs> <laughs> let, let me say, I've sat in one. Yeah. It's a tight fit for me. <laughs> oh, so it's a small car. Oh, yeah. It, it, yeah, oh, yeah. oh really? It's like, well, it's when small. you see Michael J. Fox take out the entire seat 
you gotta know that that car's kind of small. Yeah, that's true. It, it it would come up to your chest, not not even there. It's a very low slung car. Oh wow! And yeah. the, the doors like, are amazing. The doors, the gull wings are the biggest things you've ever seen. They're fantastic. Yeah. How, how often it, did it, you just it, it open up the car? And, well, how many times did you just open it up and shut it? Open it up and shut it, just oh, for fun. Yeah. <laughs> you, you just had to you just had to pull the handle and go click and the, the hydraulics would just make it go that's great oh, that's cool that's cool i had it parked out the front of my house in australia and i could have the front door open and i could hear people walking by it was a sports field down the street and so people would often park and they'd have to walk past the delorean and you could hear people go is that a delorean what? <laughs> that's cool <laughs> that that's cool I I, it, I don't know if I could ever sell it. If anything, the only thing that would make me sell the one back in Australia is if I bought one here in the States because I just like being a DeLorean owner. It's, <laughs> That's it's, cool. It's good for the soul. I love how I love how you uh, I love how you just I love how you um, how you look at it. I think it's great. Yeah, um, it, it, I have a question for you uh, in terms of cars. If yeah. you could buy any version of the batmobile what would you do oh my two favorite batmobiles are the the first tim burton batmobile yeah i agree and the uh christopher nolan i agree the or the tumbler the ones in between and the ben affleck one uh never really did anything for me the original the tim burton batman and the batmobile that he did for it the idea of a big turbo fan jet engine yeah. in a car and the the sort of the gunmetal finish of it yeah. mm-hmm. i mean it's really hard back then nobody had seen anything like that right. making dark gritty superhero film and turning the batmobile into something real and useful uh and then christopher nolan just took it took that idea to the nth degree with a real you know really militarizing batman and the batmobile that he had mm-hmm. uh, hey that'd be, my, that'd be my two i would agree what do you about you greg what do you got what do you think oh tim burton all the way yeah in 1989 batman with the, the canopy the way it kind of, i mean that opened was, up like that and, yeah. and the and actually the inside of it like the the, the cockpit itself i thought was was pretty sweet and the way he had like the pedal and the brake were kind of a little yeah. different i mean yeah, uh, yeah that, that's mostly the pedal and the brake i think he's wearing nike he is trainers yes is he really? they're nike they're actually they're air jordan spray paint uh spray painted black which oh, i never noticed that oh, yep yeah yeah you're right you're absolutely right <laughs> Yeah, I gotta go check that out. Yeah, but uh, Lego, uh, Lego just did a, a a series of for the 1989. But the thing is huge, and it's like 300. Oh, bucks. oh yeah, Lego did do that. Yet. What was he at? Oh my god, you got the shoes oh. from Back to the Future. <laughs> do those work like? Do those work like the actual movie? Like when you put it on, it just goes. Zoop. No, these were the these were the first ones, so they actually have no engine or. Uh, Zip, this were these were done for charity. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. So That's... they, but no, they don't lace themselves. Oh, but, oh this one's probably <laughs> run out of batteries. Oh, it had batteries. Like it actually like goes. 
Yeah. The headlights. Yeah. I remember oh. when those came out. You plug it in. Yeah. You had you charge it in in the wall, and that the front Nike lights up yeah. and then these lit up. That's so it, cool. It's all up. right. I'm gonna let Greg take over here, and he's gonna geek out a little bit. <laughs> Because uh, Greg, I'm sh- I don't know if you have any Star Wars questions. You guys are huge Star Wars fans. Oh well, you know John. John was very much a fan of the books. Um, and I, like I said, I had read uh, seven. I still call it Seven Ancient Wonders because that's I got the title wrong for years. But turns out I had it right. Um, you were both right. But uh, what, when we were talking about, it, he's like, "Well, he's a huge nerd," and I'm like, "Oh, that I can relate to." <laughs> Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's what I had read. And I read you got the DeLorean. I, I read you had a, a life size uh, Han Solo and Carbonite. Where do you put that? <laughs> yeah. So uh, again, when you move to the United States from Australia, that is sitting in a friend's bar. In <laughs> um, do you ask I, people to like take pictures of it just so you can kind of see it a little bit? And... Uh, if you Google it, just Google Matthew Riley Han Solo, and you will see. I got a bookcase made for it in my house in Australia. It's seven feet tall. And so I got a bookcase builder to build the bookcase around it. So if you Google Matthew Riley Han Solo, it comes up and you'll see a photo of me standing next to it. Oh, there's a 15 second clip of you. You're right behind it. You're wearing a red shirt. Oh, that's, that's that's when we moved it. So when you, when move, you it. move it, you you know it hovers, you know, like in Empire Strikes Back, and I uh, know I did that with some movie magic. Got a nice. got a friend, and we we did oh, it. Oh, Greg, out. you're gonna you're gonna enjoy this. I gotta share this. You're gonna enjoy this, Greg, if you don't mind, Matt. No, no. So, so it was good fun. It, it looks like I'm moving it down the street. I got <laughs> overfed. Do you see it. the picture, Greg, or did I do it wrong? No, it's coming up. There it is. Oh, you see nice. this? See yeah, how I he see. has like the stormtroopers and Boba Fett, and he's walking it out to the car. And there's the DeLorean. There's the DeLorean. <laughs> there's DeLorean. DeLorean right. Oh, nice. oh yeah. There's your DeLorean. No, he's actually in the shot. It's in the shot. He's in. Go. He's in the shot of. Oh, the oh, I see, it, I see it. I'm sorry. Yeah, right there. It's right there. <laughs> yeah. All right. Here you go, Greg. And so yeah, that's the bookcase that I had built uh, to size uh, around Han Solo because if you get Han Solo. You have to put him in pride of place. So <laughs> it's true. Wow. So how heavy is that, Matt? I'm I'm just short of six feet tall. I'm five ten. So that's okay. it's seven feet high. How how heavy is it? It's really heavy. I don't know why. Is it's it fiberglass. It's fiberglass, but it's the back is somehow really really heavy. I don't know why. Huh. Yeah. Wow! Oh, so, cool. so when it drops down from Java's palace, it makes that big boom. I mean, you got to have yeah. a weight there to make that yeah, that's big right. boom. That's right. And, you know, you need a stormtrooper and Boba Fett to move it. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, that was really cool. Um, that was, we put it on a trolley and rolled it down the street. And then we digitally removed the trolley. So it looks like it's hovering. Kind of that's fun. Cool. That's very cool. Are there any, um, what else do you have? Like, what else? Like, you have Django Fett Are behind you. Like, are you a comic book collector, or are you a, you know, you know anything uh, like that? I, I sort of read, you know, sort of the big comic books, like The Killing Joke, mm-hmm. or, you know, The Death of Robin, or Red Sun. Mm-hmm. Um, I read one of the one of the sort of classic Wonder Woman or Captain Marvel comics. 
mm-hmm. but I'm not a I'm not a comic collector. You know, I've, I've got like I love movie posters. So I've got Die Hard here. This is an original nice. 1988 Die Hard. I've got Escape from New York uh, just over on the wall here. Nice. Um, I a lot a lot of ships. You know, if I look around my office here, I've got like the Enterprise, the Snowspeeder, a Klingon bird of prey, the alien dropship from Aliens. Nice. Um, so I love I love the the hardware of of mm-hmm. science fiction. And I suppose when I talked about Hyperion before, you know, these gateways through wormholes. You know, I, I love the hardware of science fiction, and in yeah. Star Wars, the used universe. I even liked. Mm-hmm. Even in the solo movie, which had very little to recommend it, I did like how they adjusted the Millennium Falcon and gave it. Oh sure. Gave it. They just changed the look. Yeah. Gave, mm-hmm. gave pod. Now they didn't use it very well in the story, but I loved how they adjusted. Mm-hmm. You know, iconic ship. Yeah. Yeah. I I could imagine like if I ever. Wrote a book, and it would probably be in the fantasy genre. One of my biggest things I would love is if, like, certain blacksmiths or something started to create, like, the armor and the weaponry that I had seen. I mean, I, I'm a big sword guy and weapon guy anyway. I like that kind of stuff. So, um, seeing that, that would be cool to see something that you wrote about, and then have a, another artisan create something off of that. Actually, as you say that, the the kids' book I wrote, Hover Car Racer. Okay. Oh, cool. Yeah. This is the one I sold to Disney for, for close to a million bucks. It had these nice. hover cars, you know, which had these sort of hover. Uh, and somebody did this. It was actually it was a, a web guy I used to know. And this is paper. This is crafted out of folded yeah. paper. You can get it on my website, MatthewRiley.com. Print it out and build your own hover. <laughs> cool. That's pretty cool. That's so nice. It, it is a it's a real kick when you see somebody something that existed in my brain yeah if any of the books become a movie if i get to stand on the set of ice station you know i created that out of my brain right yeah real that would be a kick or the first trap room that jack has to go through in the beginning of the book like if you walk in there and you'll be like wow they put this together yeah yeah i'm well i i am I hope it happens. I'm very excited. I hope you. I hope somebody gets smart and they put that on Netflix. And I think it's going to catch fire. I, I love that. That I love. I love your shit, Matt. It's awesome. I can't say it enough. Um. Uh. But I wanted to talk to you a little bit more. Do you have time? I'm. Mean, we're over an hour here. Are you okay? Are we good? Do you need to go? Yeah, yeah sure. A little bit more time. Thank you. Um, do you, when you're writing, do you enjoy the process of writing or the completion of it? What do you get more of a kick out of? Oh, you know, I, the completion is very satisfying. The process is addictive. Explain that. To have something at the end of the day that wasn't there at the start is addictive. And that's what I enjoy. And I'm not writing a book at the moment, but when I start a new one, it's sort of like having that little bit of a hit that first day when you when you punch out sort of eight or ten pages. Yeah, you you've got something at the end of the day that wasn't there at the start, and the completion is an extra satisfaction. So you I enjoy both. Okay, interesting. That's cool. 
Um, do you are do you want to write anything else like comedy, drama, horror, science fiction? I like, or are you, know, you just? I think um, I think Steven Spielberg is a very good model. Um, I think he's a guy who started out doing Jaws, Raiders, E.T. Mm -hmm. And then as you grow up, you get something more to say. And then he makes his Schindler's List. Mm -hmm. and I think as I get older, I'm 46 now, I think I would transition more into perhaps something a little more serious. Mm -hmm. If and when I have something to say. The tournament has something to say. Mm -hmm. um, but I think there's more down the track. So, yeah, I, I think there, there can be different stories down the track to be told. Have you ever read anything by Eric Larson? Like Devil in the White City? Or, no, um, I've held Devil in the White City in my hands in a bookstore. It's, it's interesting the way, I mean, it's a nonfiction book. Hmm. And he, I mean, he must have done a ton of research. And the way he writes it is that it reads like a fiction. You know, so he's obviously filling in some gaps with some dialogue and stuff like that. But, um, Real interesting writing style and still being able to learn, you know, the last one I read was called Dead Wake, when it was uh, about submarine warfare, uh, pre-World War, well, pre-American entrance into World War II. Um, so just real fascinating, you know, those kind of things. So I'm learning, but I'm enjoying it like a fiction. Um, mm. So that's pretty neat. Mm. Nonfiction's hard. You got, yeah, yeah. I prefer that <laughs> Right. Right. Um, when, when do you, Matt, when do you find that you are most creative? Is it, do you wake up at like right at break of dawn and you're ready to go? Or are you a night owl or? Monday morning and Tuesday morning. That's it? Yeah. They're my bet most productive times. I, I don't write on the weekends anymore. Okay. Found friends and family. They work Monday to Friday. So to be social, I, I largely work between Monday and Friday. Yeah. And so when I've had two days off on the weekend, I'm ready to go Monday morning and ready to go Tuesday morning. Sometimes I might take Wednesday and go and play golf, get outside, see some buddies, mm -hmm. and then go again Thursday, Friday mornings. But Monday and Tuesday mornings, I sort of turn off the phone and put my head down. It's when I get the best work done. Interesting. Do you have any tricks that you, like, because I imagine somebody like you, maybe even right now with COVID and your lack of ability to really get out and go see things. And I'm talking about travel. Are you struggling writer's block wise? Are you like, man, I, I, I need to see other things. I need to see. You know, I enjoy just stimulation. I, yeah. I enjoy the street window shopping. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Traveling. I had two trips canceled this year. I was supposed to go there to the UK. And when you go to the UK, you can't not be inspired. Um, there are castles, Stonehenge, just old stuff. Yeah. It's like, you know, Australia and the US. We're young compared to England yeah. and Europe. And mm -hmm. you go, there, Lord of the Rings could not have been written anywhere else. But if you grew up in England and the UK, and you, you could come up with that. But um, uh, so, yeah, I miss the travel. In terms of the stories, no, I'm okay. I sort of, I wrote two Lost Mountains, and I'm I'm ready to to do the one, so that's all there, ready to go. So, um, I, it's funny. It's be careful what you wish for. If you could write all day every day, mm -hmm. it, you're almost you know it's like Charlie in the Chocolate Factory. Imagine just eating chocolate 
all day, every day. Yeah, yeah, that would be horrible. You'd sitting on the couch just with your face smeared with chocolate going, oh. (laughs) Right. You you need, I need. That's bad, right? Yeah, well, (laughs) I I need the break to help the thing be fresh. So, yeah, yeah, that's the thing that I, you know, I had to manage it. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Um, Are your friends creative types? I mean, do you guys bounce stuff off one another or or do you kind of not want that influence from other creative types? You know, uh, most of my friends, especially from Australia, are not. Um, I've got a very good friend here in L.A. named Stuart Beatty, who is a screenwriter. He wrote Pirates of the Caribbean and Collateral. And and we, we, we read each other's stuff. And he's a great guy to bounce ideas off um, and enjoys the same stories I enjoy. Um, but as a general rule, yeah, um, no, uh, this is the thing, you know, who, who writes books? You know, your, your friend, your yeah. neighbor, what do you know? And <laughs> I remember when I wrote Contest and a friend read it and sort of looked at me and, you know, read the first 50 pages and said, this is actually pretty good. <laughs> And I think they, they, they secretly thought it was going to be, be terrible. Crap. Yeah. <laughs> they said, this reads well, like a real book. I can't believe someone I know wrote something that reads like a real book. So, yeah. I, I can imagine. I mean, I know the people I went to high school and college with. And if I ever came out and be like, oh, yeah, I'm an international uh, best-selling author. And they'd look at me and be like, screw off. You are not. You're the, you're the guy that was jumping out of the hay mound. What are you talking about? Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. that would be the <laughs> experience. So, yeah, when... You, Go ahead. Yeah, I'm sorry, Matt. Illusion that all these creative people sort of hang out together, and I think some of the actors in Hollywood do that. But I, yeah, I, I, the writers and the directors and the producers I know, yeah, don't bother with that sort of scene. They're yeah. they're too busy. It's a business. Well, and yeah. I, some of the actors I've heard of that are extremely, they seem to be extremely humble individuals. Um, Especially when they're in terms of like casting, like can can anybody else play your role kind of thing? They're like, my job is to speak the words that someone else wrote while pretending to be somebody else, and so they really put a lot of the the pure talent of of Hollywood is in that writer's the writer's room or in, in that writer's hands, um, and I for one would kind of believe that too, knowing what I know yeah. even from the comic industry, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Matt, with the Hunt, Huntsman series, I I think you have to do an, an unseen amount of research, and I'm and I'm really, I guess I'm a little bit jealous, Matt. I, I when you looked at Stonehenge and you figured out how to fit that into six deadly stones, and then when you figured out the Rock of Gibraltar being the 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 one to the underworld. No, I had that wrong. That that's not the that's not the uh, underworld kingdom, is it? No, that's in India. That's in right. The- yeah. Yes. You're right. Uh, you're right. Okay. Very secret but, city. Uh, actually, we'll go back to that one because that I, I thought how you twisted the labors of Hercules were actually about this great contest, this great yeah. game thing. Yeah. Have you stumbled across something, or is that your imagination going? Oh, I know what this is. I'm going to take this and I'm going to put it into here and say it's a contest. Like, did you come, yeah. stumble across anything? Like, I think there was a symbol of the machine. Did you invent yeah. the machine? Or, like, is that just... Yeah, I, I invented the machine. Um, 
it, with Jack West, and it, it goes back to Seven Wonders, and it really wrapped up with Four Legendary Kingdoms and the Labours of Hercules, that I, I just thought myths change over the centuries and the millennia. And the notion, I mean, let me, by analogy, let's say the death of Princess Diana was what, around 1997 or so? Mm -hmm. It's a recent event done during the age of modern media. Yet nobody really knows what happened. You know, we, we heard that, you know, was an attempt to kill her, was her driver drunk with a paparazzi running around it. Now, let's put that to some guy named Hercules living in 1200 BC. Why are we even still talking about Hercules or Achilles? Mm -hmm. uh, or by extension, you know, Jesus Christ living 2000 years ago. Right. I mean, these are the notion of the myth of Hercules. Uh, it's so easy, you know, that that game of telephone or Chinese whispers right. over a thousand years, the the meaning is lost. And and in a certain way, it's sort of like it's like the Nolan Batman movies that he gave Batman a, a reality, a grounding in mm -hmm. reality. And so for, for four legendary kingdoms, it was the labors of Hercules. Um, for three secret cities, the notion of, you know, the city of Atlas or, or El Dorado or, or Tool. Right. Uh, and the city of Atlas, I never wanted to use the word Atlantis for it. I always right. called it the city of Atlas, not because I, I hate the word Atlantis. Um, in the coming books, you know, what about the siege of Troy? What mm -hmm. was that really? You know, people. Oh, Matt, you're teasing. <laughs> and so, why has I mean that people have actually dated the siege of Troy to about 1200 BC? Again, why is this story endured? You mm -hmm. know, what, what were they really fighting over? You know, where was Troy? You know, Schliemann's ideas have been, you know dubious and, and not really accepted anyway. Uh, so, uh, and the Turkish government use it as a, a tourist draw card. So I love reading about these myths and then giving them a real explanation, just yeah, the way you know, made the Batmobile a tumbler and, you know, Batman's suit, you know, discarded military protective gear. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Giving yeah, the myth no. reality, a grounding. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. I, I enjoy I go and look at these things and I've been to the pyramids, I've been to Stonehenge, I've been to Easter Island and I love looking at these things and thinking, is there another explanation? Yeah, that, I really, that's one of the things that I really enjoy about reading your books. Uh, speaking of books, The Lost Two Mountains, what can we expect from it? Uh, so it's, it's Helter Skelter. Uh, you will find out about Lily's fate on okay. page and um, uh, Jack is a long way behind. So we had the trial of the cities in Three mm -hmm. Secret Cities. This is the trial of the mountains. And there is a thing which is mentioned in Three Secret Cities uh, where they say to the mountains and the fall. And yes. That's what the fall is. I see. Uh, let's just say Jack's got to do something while falling. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. Okay. Uh, so I, it, that's, go ahead, Greg. Sorry. It, it, well, I, I was going to say, like, as as someone who I would even consider myself a new reader, because if I wanted to pick up some more Jack West, I would probably want to go back and read um, yeah. Seven yeah. Ancient Wonders. But would 
is it possible for someone to jump in now? I mean, it's possible, obviously, they can just pick it up and read it. But would you, would they be able to get it all? Or, or is this something that I should really go back and start from the beginning to get everything? You know, if you want the full epic nature of mm-hmm. it, you're really following this young girl, Lily, from the day of her birth through to the present. Uh, you'd go through Seven Wonders, Six Stones, and Five Warriors. I did test it out with a brand new reader um, who was actually a big sort of science fiction fantasy reader, and I said, can you read Four Kingdoms and just tell me if you could jump into the series here? And she said yes. So Four Legendary Kingdoms is the middle book. Mm -hmm. I give you a little recap here and there, and enough where, you know, it'll mention, and Jack West Jr. had a titanium left arm you know, from the day of Lily's birth, where he put his hand through a waterfall of love. So I'll bring you up to speed so you can get the full thing. But no, you could jump in at Four Kingdoms. Harder to jump in on Two Lost Mountains. Okay. Because you sort of do need to read... You sort of... Four, three, two, one is sort of one big, giant story. And are are all of these available on Audible or some other audio type of format? Yeah, I was actually into audiobooks really early, way back with iStation. Good. Go audiobooks, ahead. because they started out as books for people with sight impairments. Mm-hmm. And the very first audiobook I did for iStation was for the Royal Society for the Blind, and we did it for free. And as people started jumping on them for commutes, um, mm-hmm. it, pretty much, it was once we shifted to iPods, when you could yes. when yeah. you could restart the book at the exact spot you left rather than having a booklet of 12 CDs or 12 cassette tapes. Yeah. Once iPods came into play yeah. and then iPhones, it became for commuters. So well, audio changed. But, yeah, all my stuff is available on, on audiobook. I think most of it's on Audible. Well, I, I, I got to tell you, as a person with a disability, audiobooks are a lifesaver because oh, even yeah. like you mentioned before, Gladwell, and I, and I love his stuff. Um yeah. You know, even reading those, you know, development books or, or self-improvement books, I, I would really have a hard time getting through some of those if it wasn't for an audio uh, version mm-hmm. of it. So I'm so appreciative that that market took off. Yeah. yeah. And, and it became portable. <laughs> but, I, but I still love this. I still love Yeah, I mean, there's certainly still, that. I mean, I do yeah. like a hardcover. I mean, there is that feeling to it. I mean, that's... Actually, it's funny. I'm weird. I don't like the hardcovers. So oh, that's really? why I'm so slow to getting to these is because I wait for these to come out because it's just <laughs> easier to put in my pocket. It's easier to, like, carry around with me instead of a big book. But, um, Matt, last thing. What would you like your fans to understand about you? Oh, no one's ever that before. Well, we're here for you, Matt. I, yeah, no, thank you. I, the, the, the honest-to-goodness answer is I, I work really hard at this, and I don't just phone it in. I don't write my first draft and just mail it off to my email it to my publisher and say, there you go. For, for Two Lost Mountains, just like every other book before it, I wrote it, reread it, rewrote it, over and over again, right up until the last proofs were done. I'm the last person to read it before it goes to the printing press. And even on that last read-through, I found a couple of errors which had got past editors, proofreaders, Mm. all the many people who'd read that book. 
uh, in the publishing house. And I work really hard at it. And this is why I'm so brutal on other books, that if a book doesn't grab me or a TV show doesn't grab me, I'm like, well, I work hard to do that. And so mm -hmm. if somebody reads a Matthew Riley book and enjoys themselves, then it's been worth it. So if I wanted to, if I want my fans to know something, it's if you're enjoying it, I'm working my butt off to try and make that happen. And so I'm awesome. pleased. Awesome. And, nice. and I don't, and I don't read the comments. So, you know, yeah. <laughs> well, um, I'm sure <laughs> if you did read the comments, my books, so. I'm sure if you did read the comics, you, I think you get a lot more love than you would get hate. And anybody out there that wants to hate you for doing something that make brings you joy and joy to your fans. Screw them. Who cares? <laughs> Yeah. You know, Actually, I um, say, I, on Instagram and Facebook, I, I do try to read the comments because they are actually we've we've weeded out all the people who hate me. And now it's only the nice people. <laughs> <laughs> well, pay attention to Johnny and the Greg podcast because I try to talk to you a little bit out there. <laughs> I know no. you're busy, though. I know you're busy. If, um, if it goes too far down the comments, I, I can't get you're done. <laughs> you're done. So I got to get there right if, away. If you're past the first 10. Uh... It, I, I get to about the first hundred. But. At that point, I can either write the next book or keep reading the comics. Yeah, exactly. Write the next book, sir. I, I really try on that. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Matthew Riley, honest to God, it was a pleasure talking to you, man. I really, um, I'm really happy I got you on here. Um, yeah. Hope you had fun. Uh, you seem like you were just an '80s geek like Greg and I, and that's <laughs> you know, we are, we are all, well, to... we're all victims of our teenage years when it comes to movies and music. Yeah, and you know, I wrote a line for the mother character in the Scarecrow books, in um, Scarecrow and the Army of Thieves, where she says, "I think music peaked in the '80s," and, <laughs> and, and that was that was me talking through. I don't often talk through the characters, but yeah, you know, we we were sort of privileged to grow up. The yeah. '80s were an amazing time to be. Yeah, a they really were. They really were. That was yeah. when movies, we weren't yet making sequels of everything. Right. We weren't making Top Gun 2 30 years after Top mm -hmm. Gun. Even, you know, Die Hard. We right. weren't making Die Hard 5 20 years later. The 80s were full of original stuff. Raiders of the Lost <laughs> Ark, Aliens, Predator, The Hunt for Red October, you know. Oh, obviously, at the start of it, Star Wars. Yeah. Yep. You know, it was a hell of a time to be growing up and being surrounded by... And and not to even dismiss Stallone and Schwarzenegger as well. Right. I mean, watch Total Recall. Uh, you know, Total the first Total mm -hmm. Recall is an amazing piece of filmmaking. Yep. So you know, yeah, we're all sort of children of our teenage years, and yeah. You know what I keep? You know what I keep remembering? If you're a one-trick pony, just keep doing your trick well. <laughs> <laughs> I keep thinking about Predator. How yeah. good the first movie of Predator really yeah. was. How it good it really was. I think I I haven't watched it in a while, but I'm sure it holds up. Maybe not it the does. effects in certain areas, but does it? Not even the effects. The effects, I mean, those practical effects kind of do hold up. Okay. John McTiernan. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Also I agree. I had also directed it. Cool. So, Matt, to end every podcast, uh, actually, real quick, where can people find you? You said MatthewRiley.com. Anything else? Yeah, I'm on Instagram, I think, is Matthew Riley Official. And mm -hmm. Facebook, I think, is Official Matthew Riley. I <laughs> really know. Um, but if you jump on MatthewRiley.com, 
it's got the Facebook and the Instagram feeds on it, so you'll find it. It's all right there. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Um, we always end our podcast with a fact of the day. You want to hang on? Hear that fact of the day? Sure. All this right. This is completely random fact yeah. from the internet. Yeah. So it's kind of fun. An orca killed a great white shark near California's Far Island Islands in 2000. The smell of the dead shark's carcass caused an all nearby great whites to vanish. A great white with a satellite tag in the area was seen to immediately dive to a depth of 500 meters and hightail it right to Hawaii. Huh. Wow. Don't mess with an orca, man. I- I didn't know Great Whites hung out on the West Coast. Uh, I think to run away, or I, they won't anymore with this orca running around. <laughs> <laughs> Deadly orca, yeah. That's a well, I mean, they're in the Great Barrier Reef. I mean, they're in Australia. Oh, like, yeah. That's warm yeah. water. Great Whites have a huge range. Oh, yeah. 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 And the orcas, too. Yeah. I. You know what I thought was really crazy about orcas? There's never been a recorded attack on a human being in the wild, only in captivity. Really? Isn't that crazy? Don't keep them mm. in captivity. I agree with you, man. Yeah. All right, man. That ends it. For everybody that listened, thank you very much. You guys are lucky. And the last thing I'm going to leave you with, Mr. Riley, is do not kill Jack West. Do you understand <laughs> me? Do not. Like, if you want to wreck his helmet, okay. But do not. One way or the other, Matt. Uh, when your next book comes out and when I catch up, we'd love to have you on again and talk about the new Yeah, book. please. Absolutely. I love Absolutely. Thank you much. Appreciate Thank it. Thank you very much, sir. Take care. Johnny Bye. Greg Podcast out. <laughs>